0: You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Srivastava Prakash.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Matthew Peterson from Peterson Investment Funds which is a value based hedge fund based in California. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. Thanks Sri.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So what's your background and how were you introduced to finance and value investing and your journey to
0: becoming a value hedge fund manager? Yeah, Shri. Uh, so I started. Uh, I started in the investing world at a at a very young age. In fact, I was um, sort of buying random bank uh, products like CDs when I was sort of eleven and twelve, and trying to trade around and get the best best rates. Uh, back Back then, in the sort of early '90s, uh, rates were a little bit higher, so they were <laughs> it was somewhat an activity worth doing. Uh, and I, I, basically, I've been in the industry for, for about two decades. I studied economics and math. Uh, and before running the firm, I uh, had a career out in Wall Street where I was doing work with investment banks uh, on risk management. And, uh, you know, value investing always made a lot of sense to me. I was just, I, I from uh, as long as I can ever remember, uh, sort of a disciple of Warren Buffett and understood that there's you know, some sort of intrinsic value to these businesses and trying to identify uh, companies that will be, uh, you know, that are undervalued in the market where you can get a great return. And, um, and you know, that basically for the last few decades, I've been uh, approaching the world from that perspective.
1: So how were you, like what drove you towards value investing specifically compared to say like technical analysis or trend following or something like that?
0: Yeah, I guess I just always, uh, I, I never really uh, believed in uh, sort of trends. I always knew, uh, I just had this, I, I, I just knew that equities are the longest products available, the longest investment products available. I mean, technically, even if a, you know, a company uh unless they're going out of business maybe they're even acquired by a new firm and then that equity just continues to live on so i always thought about it from a really long um, time horizon uh and i sort of look out 20 30 years on a regular basis and and do the compounding math and um, so that's just always made a lot of sense to me i also uh don't like paying a lot in taxes and uh Anytime you make a short-term investment and you have a gain, uh, you're subject to short-term capital gain taxes. And I'm I'm, uh, a much bigger fan of allowing that to compound owning high-quality businesses uh, over the long term. I've also, you know, I've studied this for uh, such a long period of time. I I can't exactly pinpoint, uh, you know, when I understood that value was the approach that I was going to take, but um, it's sort of just... To me, feels like I've always had that opinion. Uh, you know, even back in the '90s, uh, you know, trying to understand what the value of a business is uh, before putting money and investing into that business.
1: And You know, as Warren Buffett says, you know, value investing—it's something you, like you either get it or you—you you know, for the rest of your life, you just don't.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I frankly don't understand people who are or uh, the idea of sort of doing charting and trend analysis. I know some people do it. I think those that make a lot of money doing it are sort of lucky, uh, and I and I think it's uh, a much more concrete approach to understanding the true intrinsic value of a business, uh, understanding the sort of present values of all the future cash flows, and looking at what it's selling for in the market. And sometimes you can find outstanding bargains.
1: Great. What are your thoughts on the ongoing COVID crisis? You know, you had all the lockdown stuff is reopening now. You know, how long do you think it's going to last? What are your thoughts on a V shaped recovery? And what are your thoughts on the impact it's had on the markets and the economy as a whole? I know that's a big question. So I'll the, time
0: that, to is a, that is a very big <laughs> question. And, um, and of course, nobody has a crystal ball. So I am I'm very happy to give you my perspective on it all. Uh, I think it's an educated perspective. But I, uh, again, Uh, You have to view the future in terms of probabilistic nature and probabilistic outcomes. And um, so there's, I think, a very wide range of uh, possibilities moving forward from here. Uh, However, I think uh, in general, this too shall pass. Uh, And I believe that in probably one year's time, if you follow sort of the Gates notes uh, and ideas from those um, thought leaders, uh, we probably will have a vaccine uh, if, in, of some kind uh, or at least some sort of pharmaceuticals that will help alleviate, uh, you know, not only the, the COVID-19 itself, but realistically the fear of, around surrounding COVID-19. Uh, you know, I do I think that Live Nation is going to go out of business because of COVID? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think that um, companies will be around uh, I've been a big fan of Jeremy Siegel for for many years, and um, you know he sort of uh, I think highlights very clearly that uh, shows very clearly that if you were to completely eliminate earnings this year from every company in say the S and P 500, the total impact to sort of the intrinsic value would be like a five to ten percent discount to market prices. So if you just took today's year and all of those earnings away. You might get a little pullback, but nothing like we had in March. I think March was a huge overreaction. I think uh, markets do not like uncertainty, and things were very, very uncertain. The CDC wasn't very clear; gave us pretty, I think, poor information, and uh, and uh, some of the various responses made the uncertainty um, even greater. But I was, um, I've been on a number of podcasts, and I've been very public about it. And I actually sent out a a letter to my clients on March 25th uh, saying, you know, fasten your safety belts, but this is a buying opportunity. Uh, and in my annual report, my 2019 annual report, I have an image which is available online. I have an image of all of the drawdowns uh, over about a 40-year period, all of the intra year drawdowns and the final returns for the year. And intra year uh, drawdowns, actually, there's only about four, uh, five, including COVID, drawdowns that reach into the 30% levels. I mean, this is very, very rare, very rare to have this sort of impact uh, in the market. So over 40 years, five times, including this most recent time, and the Fed's reaction, the stimulus that was provided, and then the way that it was provided, and I don't want to get into a whole macro conversation because again there's so many variables and it's uh nobody has a crystal ball but the the pushing the number the the trillions of dollars not only like the financial crisis into sort of the banking sector or into the reserves but directly into like m1 and m2 so you know people are getting their ppp money and it's going directly into their bank accounts and people are getting, now there's the Fed's mainstream lending program. All of these small businesses are gonna get hundreds and thousands and millions and billions in their bank accounts. This is like pent up demand that will probably find its way into the economy and that will drive earnings. And so, uh, you know, the the truly unprecedented stimulus that was provided by the Fed, I think uh, is very notable. This is like a generational low. And when we look back in the 2030s, I think people are going to look back at 2020 and say, wow, that was such an opportunity to be putting capital to work. And we're still in that opportunity right now. It is, we are right now in the mm-hmm. middle of like the greatest opportunity of this generation.
1: And you're saying that even with like the S&P yet. You know, just about 2% below what it started the year at and the Nasdaq at new all-time highs. You know, you're still saying that it's still a buying opportunity regardless of where the market is. Yes, I am. I'm saying
0: uh look, there this ride can be volatile. Okay. So, if you look at the VIX, which is commonly considered the volatility or the fear index, uh the VIX has spikes throughout all, you know, the decades and uh and it's it's really rare It's actually, uh, you know, volatility, a spike up to a VIX of say into the 35, 40s is very high and very rare. And we are still at that levels right now today. So volatility is high. And actually in March, we broke all historical records. The VIX went to 85 for a couple of days or in the 80s for a few days. And we've never seen it at that level in history. So volatility is, the markets will be bumpy, it will be scary, there is uncertainty, but it is, if you look at the probabilistic future, the pathways that we will move coming out of this, it is much more likely that the markets will be higher and maybe substantially higher in a couple years than lower. And, uh, you know, in my fund, we are looking at it's very bottom up individual security based right we have a concentrated portfolio and uh and so we don't need to buy you know the s p 500 there might be some expensive things inside the s p 500 uh but if you can find individual you can find individual securities and maybe some of them are cyclical in nature but uh they are uh, there are some outstanding opportunities right now. And I think when we look back from the future, we'll see that very clearly, the Fed puts so much stimulus in. Uh, you know, and I know this is not a common belief at all right now, but I think it is much more likely that we actually end up with some inflation moving into the next few years. Uh, most people would say that there's deflation coming, but this time the Fed has put the money right into the pockets of the consumers and I don't think it's a hyperinflation environment, but the Fed's target's been 2%. Uh, Powell's explained over and over that interest rates will remain low for the next couple of years. If interest rates remain low and consumers are spending uh, and the market comes back or the, the economy comes back to a somewhat normal operating level, uh, we can see inflation. We can see 2%, 3 4% inflation quite easily. Uh, and and that will also find its way into the markets that drives, you know, markets uh, have a way of of pricing and inflation.
1: Do you think that people are actually going to spend this money because the most recent statistics showed that savings rate was at an all time high? I think people were saving about 33 percent of what they earned. So, you no, know, and yeah. you know, for, you know, coming out of this, you know, people could be different, you know.
0: Absolutely. Again, look, there are so many variables and you're absolutely right with that statistic. Okay. So suddenly Americans have become net savers for the first time in I don't even know how long, right? So uh, do I expect that people will spend the money? I think when things really open up, uh, humans are social creatures. And I do expect people want to be out. They want to, uh, they want to spend uh, their capital. They want to, go to sporting events. I think right now we have we have paused the economy in a very dramatic fashion uh, that is now opening up. Uh, we're now seeing additional spikes, et cetera. Uh, but look, there are so many variables. It's again, there's no crystal ball. There's no crystal ball. But I was, I'll tell you, I was talking with a fellow from Oxford uh, just this last week and we sort of determined uh, there might be a very small, but I would almost say ten percent chance the S and P hits something pretty outrageous, like five thousand, by the end of twenty twenty two.
1: I just wanted to stay on this topic for just another minute. So uh, now, what are your thoughts on a second wave? With all these protests, and you know, people are yeah, people are still gathering and. You know, what are your thoughts uh, on the possibility of a second a second wave that we've seen in places in Asia, like South Korea, Iran? Look,
0: I don't, I don't, so I'm not a medical expert professional, but I have various opinions. Uh, and I do follow, <laughs> I do follow the news, media, et cetera, regularly. I think it's, it's very possible and likely that we have bits of a second wave, uh, if I really had to map out what I think, and, and all of these are sort of probabilistic in nature, so uh, there's also uh, the possibility that the opposite of what I describe occurs, but I would imagine we will have uh, second spikes on a very regular basis across the nation, across the, the U.S. and in Canada, across the, around the world. We will have second spikes as things open up, uh, and we may even have localized shutdowns. Uh, Apple just announced. I think that they're closing uh, some, some amount, eleven or so stores across the U.S. Uh, due because they're in locations where there's spikes occurring. So there may be businesses that open and close temporarily. Uh, but I do, I do really believe that we will understand things as we understand things better and better. People will be more and more comfortable. Uh, Going out at their own risk. So young people like yourself, Sri, you may have no real fear of this uh, over the next few years, as you recognize, as as it gets recognized that young people, young healthy people, really uh, don't don't get especially ill. Uh, there might be groups of people that stay in, uh, you know, that are more vulnerable. Somebody with a pre-existing condition, but in general, I think we will have. S- second waves, people will get more comfortable. I think uh, it was necessary to shut down while we got more information, but I don't think we should remain shut down. I think uh, there is too much damage that does occur to the economy if we keep shut down, if we shut down for an extended period of time. And I think things are opening up uh, relatively quickly. And, um, and, you know, again, no crystal ball, but uh, the Fed's doing a lot. Treasury is doing a lot. Uh, money seems to be going into the right places, and so I expect uh, I expect firms to to do just fine um, over the next twelve to eighteen months.
1: Moving on to the more investing side of things, you know, how has your portfolio personally done during COVID? And you know, you have es and P five hundred hedge. You, I believe you own some puts on es and P five hundred. So, uh, you know, now yeah. how has that played out?
0: so so uh actually, our positions are extremely solid, so we have a number of very uh, strong balance sheets in our portfolio. I mean, the companies that we're looking at are just they're excellent businesses in general, so it has been volatile it has been extremely bumpy but uh but not in a concerning way uh because of the businesses that we that we do hold so uh, the hedge that you're describing is actually, it's been a very interesting uh, component of the portfolio. Uh, again, it is designed for multi-year protection. And so I, I'm sure you read the, I'm sure you read okay. in detail in the 2009 annual report. Uh, actually in, in, in reality, it, it, uh, it's because of the multi-year nature of the protection, And that all of this happened, okay, so right now we're on June, we're, you know, at the end of June, and everything sort of started in the end of February, beginning of March. So we had a very solid v shaped recovery here, and we did not have the chance for these puts to expire. So most of the puts that we own that you're describing expire in December and January of this year, December and January of 2021, and December... Uh, of 2022 so they go out quite some time what we have been able to do is we were able to unwind some of that strategically throughout this period so we may we unwound some early but we also had some offsetting hedges uh some short hedges that also went up in value so it's a little complicated problem and i'll probably write about it in detail in the 2020 report but uh the the rational thought behind it was a multi-year hedge and this, uh, this crisis was very fast. I mean, we're, I say we're still in it, but like, as you know, I mean, the market has, has almost fully recovered. Uh, not everything, by the way, not everything has gone up. In fact, it's like the FANG companies that have really pulled the market right. up. And a lot of the other businesses are still uh, lagging uh, big time, which actually is what provides the opportunities today. I, I think it's great to have quality businesses, capital-like businesses, the tech companies have been doing very well for a very long time, uh, but there are quite a few other businesses uh, that are that are positioned to do well uh, over the next few years.
1: I mean, yeah, so uh, the S&P is basically 26% tech, and then the rest of it is, you know, the remaining 10 sectors or so, so, you know. That's right. And, uh, and That's right, in fact,
0: In fact, I can't, I don't recall uh, a period when uh, things were this, this concentrated. Uh, In fact, I know- The
1: last 50 years, it's the most concentrated it's ever been.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think you recently had a discussion with Jeremy Deal, who's a good friend of mine, and, um, and actually in Switzerland earlier this year, he gave a presentation about that level of concentration within the S&P 500, uh, which is just very fascinating.
1: You no, know, what kind of bargains are you currently finding in this market? And do you have a favorite sector right now?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, so, so what kind of bargains? Uh, well, I'm gonna. De- I'll describe. Uh, I'll describe a really high level model that I think about, which is sort of having the highest quality uh, business models, the highest quality managers, and then the um, highest, or I guess the the best uh, or cheapest valuation. So I'm sort of always trying to identify top business models, top managers, and, and very cheap opportunities. And it doesn't always fall into a specific sector. Um, yeah, I can, in fact, I don't want to, to basically go through the whole portfolio, but I will point out a couple of, um, I'll point out a couple of different uh, Options, I guess. Uh, First of all, I will share with you that one of the uh, so I engage in something called structured value. So uh, our portfolio, although it consists of um, you know a concentrated portfolio of equities, the way that we purchase those equities is quite unique. Uh, Back back when I was uh, uh, back when I had my career on Wall Street, um, we were we were building these calculators and things, and I was analyzing all these different trading desks and tools. Within Goldman Sachs, and uh, recognized that there were ways to combine these uh, that even the bank wasn't using uh, that would be quite advantageous. So, for example, and this is the real opportunity right now. I mean, for all your viewers that are out there trying to buy stock, whether they're doing it professionally or whether they're doing it on, you know, Robinhood, I think um, this is the approach that they should be taking. So, uh, what I do is I combine cash secured puts as Great. a tool to buying the equity. So first and foremost, you identify the, the stock that you wanna hold. And, and again, we can talk about some of those. Uh, but once you've identified that there's a truly undervalued opportunity out there, I end up going and looking into the put uh, markets. I look in the option markets and ultimately end up writing a contract that allows someone else to put their stock to me if the shares, Decline, for example. So, uh, uh, a really obvious example would be Berkshire Hathaway itself. So, in March, uh, you know, I, I have on my website and a few other places I show this like 1.7 trillion dollar valuation for Berkshire in 2030, and um, you know, I guess it's trading maybe at 400 400 million or so today. And it dropped a little bit below that, and that's just so wrong. I mean, the price is just so incorrect, uh, and uh, and you can you can break that up pretty quickly and just look at the equity portfolio, the cash on their balance sheet, and then take one of their large companies like Burlington Northern, and you basically have the whole value of the market price, and they've got ninety other subsidiaries that you just kind of get for free. I mean, it's it's, it's really mispriced, um, and there's all sorts of reasons that people might, uh, you know, might be might not be treating it very fairly at the moment. Um, And that will change. But when market prices fell, uh, the B shares, I believe, went to about 165. uh, And we were able to sell a put contract, write a put contract uh, that went out until September. And we sold it for $18. Our commitment was to buy Berkshire Hathaway stock for 165. And we were paid $18 for that commitment. That means we hold $147 in cash. And then with the $18 that was provided to us, and we have our 165 to buy the stock. So if the shares go below 165, which is just an incredible price, I, just, I really, I don't think we'll see prices like that on Berkshire moving forward. Uh, and right now it's at about 170, I mean, it's just incredible. So instead of just buying it in stock market, we were able to write this contract, that contract, Get, provides us eighteen dollars whether we buy the shares or not. We keep that eighteen dollars, and uh, until the shares expire, we have an offsetting liability, which is the, pro- the the price of this put contract, and that bounces around in a very volatile way. And in September, when that expires, uh, most likely that contract will expire with a price of zero. Our liability will shrink asymptotically towards zero, and we will keep the eighteen dollars. And that's a twenty four and a half percent yield, annualized yield on Berkshire Hathaway that somebody has paid us to buy their shares if the stock goes down. And it's based on these factors like the VIX, like volatility. And because volatility is so high, the premiums on these types of contracts are extraordinary. People are willing to pay you a huge percent of the underlying stock just it's to protect themselves. But if you know something on a quantitative level or qualitative level about these uh, businesses, you find you have a very advantageous uh, situation because uh, the trading is done qualitatively and you're looking at it from a quantitatively and you're looking at it from a qualitative perspective. So uh, that is the, that is the real opportunity, but I will share with you. I don't, do you want me to talk about a, a, another company? Cause I can share with you a different sure. opportunity. Is it we can talk about Daily Journal, too. Uh, <coughs> uh, look, Daily Journal doesn't have these uh, contracts. So that's what makes it kind of interesting. But if I, I will explain very briefly uh, something I think is interesting. Um, there are a number of key shareholders, a great business model in this company, Seritage, And we had a little investment in Saratage uh, a couple of years ago. It ended up taking... Uh, far too long. I recognized that the price not, might not move for a long time. Uh, so we actually got out and, um, and we had just better uses of our capital. But, um, but it was outstanding. It, I mean, the business is fine. They have basically 208 properties across America. All of the Sears uh, real estate that was spun out by Eddie Lampert. Um, Buffett owns a piece. A lot of great people. Um, are involved in the business, and they have one, uh, they have one debt facility, it's all provided by Berkshire Hathaway, and people are misunderstanding the company, because um, uh, Berkshire, in my view, doesn't want to be seen as a vulture, and so they're not going to have some liquidity crisis, and then, you know, in effect, steal all the property from the equity holders. That's not their, uh, that's not their approach to business in general. In fact, uh, I've watched the covenants get lighter over the last few months as they've made some adjustments to help saratage survive. Now the price of the stock has fallen from 45 uh, to about 10 and it was as low as six. Okay, this is an extraordinarily uh, volatile business and there is a small chance, I think, but very small chance, that they really could have a liquidity crisis and, an, and a major issue, and maybe see the shares go even lower. Uh, but I think there's a much bigger chance that we have an outstanding recovery from here. Seritage uh, is uh, 200 and 208, uh, you know, properties. Some of them are very, very high quality, and they're building up. Uh, you know, these are one-story sort of malls, so the square footage is going to grow. Quite significantly but what I would like to share with you is that instead of buying the stock for let's say uh, I don't know what it is today but let's say it's $12 per share instead of buying it for $12 share in the open market you can write one of these contracts and you can get about four dollars to buy these shares from someone else over the next say seven months through next January so if I can get four dollars to buy it for 12 through January uh, If I don't buy it, I'm gonna earn 50% on my $8 in collateral, 50% return. And I don't even own the stock. Plus I have a 30% margin of safety where the shares can decline. And so this is just an out, you don't get you know sort of 50% IRRs on these products unless the world is in a very uncertain time and volatility is extraordinarily high. So this is just an outstanding opportunity you know, to use these types of products as a tool to get into whatever company it is that, that you like. Uh, and it's, um, it's just something we don't see very often.
1: I mean, it's incredible. Like, you no, know, you're short these puts, and then, you know, if it goes, if the stock price goes down, you get an amazing buying opportunity. If it goes up, you make money off your puts. So
0: that's right. I find this also to be very useful um, if people have a tendency to try to time, market time or hit the bottoms. Uh, it's just, impo- it's an impossible thing to, to time and get the bottom or the top. Uh, and if, if it happens, really it comes down, comes down to luck. And so, uh, but it's human nature. Everybody wants to buy at the lowest possible price. And it's actually very hard to buy as things start moving up because you always want yesterday's price. And so you have to find a way to get yourself into the market. And this is a very nice way to sort of uh, write a put contract with a limit order with a price that's higher than the market price. So if Saritage, for example, is selling, uh, it has some puts that are selling for $3, you can easily offer to sell puts for $4. And over the course of not very long, these are so volatile, these prices are so volatile that oftentimes they'll get bought from you and you're now in uh, at a much lower price than the market. Uh, you can imagine, uh, let's, let's just say that, uh, you know, Seritage ends up appreciating back to $40 per share. Uh, I think the value over a period of time will, will reach that level. That'll give you a five x return from eight, but if you pay twelve for it, uh, you're actually going to get, you know, a, a three three and a third x return. So actually, the end result by paying less using this approach is enormously valuable as well. It it literally changes the IRR um, of your portfolio.
1: It's an incredible strategy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, look, a lot of people don't use it. I actually used to be really reluctant to share uh, this strategy. I thought it would be totally exploited. Um, but no matter how many times I, I teach people and tell them, uh, most, most, don't, most don't do it. Um, part of it could be the volatility of the product or not quite understanding it. But, uh, but I, do, I do recommend for, for the people that are listening to this podcast, go out and write one. Okay, one one contract is worth a hundred shares of stock, so you have to write it accordingly. Uh, you know, if you've got a billion dollars, that's great. You can write on some pretty big things, but uh, but if you don't, you're going to have to uh, you know you're going to have to use these carefully. But uh, but instead of buying the shares, go out and 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 write one of these, and um, and you'll see you'll see what happens over time.
1: You no, know, something that you've said is that superior investing has a lot to do with having a superior process. So, could you go into the details of your process from how you source ideas to making a final decision and what all goes on in the middle?
0: Yes, I can, and I think this is enormously important. I actually think if you get the process right, and by the way, the process evolves uh, incrementally over time. So, as you get more experience, your process continuously improves. Uh, but I do think if you work very hard to get the right process, you can avoid all sorts of mistakes. And um and really that is one of the most important factors if you're running a portfolio like this. So I have bucketed our process into four uh four areas just for ease of explanation. But the first bucket, uh, which is, it's, it's so important. Um, I I don't think I can overemphasize and Most investors won't sort of talk about this because, uh, it almost, it's like, it's this idea of cloning, uh, other investors. Everybody wants to be original. Everyone wants to have their own great ideas. Uh, but the reality is this is a, a public market. The sec requires top investors to post, uh, or you know, large fund managers to post their 13 Fs on a quarterly basis. And in a sort of uh, high-frequency trading portfolio, it would be totally uh, pointless to review those 13 Fs because the positions would be exited. But if you look at 13 F reports from uh, you know, the 100 or so uh, value fund managers, you'll find that they're holding these positions for years and they usually have a very concentrated portfolio. So if one of these managers go out and makes a large purchase in a new holding, that becomes extremely interesting to us. And uh, it's just a very good place to start sourcing ideas. So step one is literally a 13F analysis for us. It requires um, you know, kind of a couple of days of going through all of these portfolios of major managers and, um, and we look at about 100 different 13F reports. And surprisingly, it only produces a pool of 100 or 200 uh, unique businesses to be looking at. And a sub-fraction of those are new. So uh, it becomes very manageable. And it becomes very interesting to see all sorts of managers piling into the same new opportunity. Uh, so. That's start one, step one. And that's, it's, it's based on, you know, I think Charlie Munger always says the first rule of fishing is to fish where the fish are. And if you've got these fund managers around the world filing 13Fs, uh, doing you know, hundreds of hours of analysis, spending millions of dollars doing their research, concluding that 10% of their portfolio is going to go into this one new idea, uh, that is a very, that's a ma- very leading, a very valuable uh, sort of indicator and um, and I think that's where the fish are. So we start right there in that um, piece. Step two is the fundamental analysis. So understanding the earnings, understanding the business model. Uh, if it's too hard, we can push it aside. We have we have dozens, if not a hundred more, that we can be looking at, and we only really need to make a few decisions a year. So uh, so we are looking in this in this basket. Uh, we are looking for exceptional opportunities and it might be a good time for me to, you mentioned Daily Journal. Um, and again, there's, there's a lot of biases that go along with, with talking through portfolio pieces, but Daily Journal is a little different because uh, it's a compounder that we expect to hold for so many years. Uh, and it's, uh, so Daily Journal is not in the 13F reports that we, that we find. So it's not one of these fish, uh, where the fish are. But what it is, is it's all of the same people running a very small micro cap uh, that is just totally under the radar. And because of that, I mean, this is run by Charlie Munger and Rick Gurren and, and Peter Kaufman, and they've been running this uh, essentially newspaper company for 42 years. They've built an equity portfolio that's worth half the market cap. Uh, the equity portfolio just kind of sits there and compounds. Just a couple of banks, but basically, uh, uh, I got to Daily Journal over a series of a lot of years by following the breadcrumbs outside of these 13F reports, um, and then the fundamental analysis is truly understanding, uh, you know, what is the value of a company like Daily Journal. And I'll tell you that I, I realized, I recognized. Uh, you know, where there's mystery, there's margin. And I've been attending the Daily Journal meetings in Los Angeles for about 10 years. And I've watched uh, the sort of tune change because they've gotten into this technology software component, but they don't really talk about it. It's, it's, it's really, especially three years ago, was was really unknown. And I asked so many participants so many dedicated followers of Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, even Daily Journal, and nobody knew what was going on. I found a training conference that was happening in Utah. And uh, I couldn't get in because it was for government employees only. But, uh, but I was able to book a room in the hotel. And so I, I sat in the lobby, and I interviewed uh, all, of the cons- all of the customers for three days that were going back and forth between these various classes. And what I discovered is that they created a court software solution for courthouses that uh, typically, traditionally, and notoriously are filled with overflowing with paperwork and, uh, and, and some bureaucracy, et cetera. And they've created this software solution. Uh, and they call it e-suites, And they basically rolled it out across the nation into many countries including Australia. And they haven't billed these counties, municipalities, and courthouses for much of the software yet. Their, their billing really takes place after implementation's complete by about four to seven years. So uh, so they spend, incredible. they spend years doing uh, RFPs, uh, building out a very unique solution for individual courthouses, and, um, and the competition requires them to pay upfront or on an ongoing basis, Daily Journal delays it. So uh, long story short, uh, I brought in an intern, Daniel Segundo, who came in and uh, we went county by county around America searching online, Google searches, and we found in their books and records the liability owed to Daily Journal. And we found tens of millions of dollars around the nation and these massive contracts that extend for ten years, uh, for for ten years at a time, and um, it looks like this business is going to be very large, a very very large business, and it's totally unrecognized, um, and that's why that's why there's so much value there, and the value is not on their financial statement. So this is all the fundamental uh, piece of the process. Um, I will then, you know, the, the structured value piece is next. So how do you go about buying this? So you found a company you want to own, and um, and in this case, it's it's you know we're talking about Daily Journal here. Uh, so we can't actually use uh, these structured products because they don't exist. Daily Journal is too small; the volume's too small. Um, they do exist, however, for you know uh, companies like Seritage, as we mentioned. So instead, of just buying the stock. Maybe we write some of these contracts. Um, when all of the TARP warrants were available, we would use some of these really long dated uh, TARP contracts, that's from the TARP bailouts from 2009, um, as a tool to buy into the equity positions. So the third step is all about how to obtain the exposure. And then the fourth step is around the portfolio management uh, piece itself. So this is where uh I would say like ideas like the Kelly criterion become extraordinarily important. And um and the Kelly criterion basically uh gives you a more objective way to allocating capital. So if you have a fixed pool of capital and you know the probability of winning versus losing, uh you have you can calculate the exact amount of your portfolio um that should be allocated to that particular position. Right. Um, and one exercise I did a few years ago was uh, just to solve in Excel uh, for every probability of success, um, from you know sort of making a penny to making 4x uh, on your investment and diff- putting different probabilities to that uh, and narrowing it down and, and sort of inverting the whole question. And um, what I discovered is that through the Kelly Criterion, basically, uh, the, the math of John Kelly points you to a portfolio of between sort of three and 10 positions. And that would be sort of optimal diversification. Um, however, it's an extremely bumpy ride if you get that close. So some people will back away from, uh, from uh, that much concentration, but, uh, But it is the appropriate level of concentration. And in most funds I see, um, they're operating at what I call diversification. uh, Because they have literally
1: positions.
0: They have so many positions. And those new positions are not necessarily uncorrelated with the other positions that are cheaper and have a higher potential. So they're introducing, uh, a lot of times, new holdings that will not add diversification benefits, but will lower the average return. Uh, and so, you know, some something around ten or twelve positions is probably the right amount uh, for a for a really well diversified portfolio. And that's sort of the whole process. So we 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 you know, we go where the fish are. Then we look deeply at the value underneath it all. We try to figure out how we would buy uh, the new position, and um, we we look at the sizing of that new uh, position quite carefully.
1: You've also mentioned that you use PE, PB, and PCF multiples. So is there like a maximum multiple you
0: pay and why or why not? Uh, sure. I, look, I, we're looking at all sorts of multiples um, and the underlying accounting uh, is extremely important, but it's really important to understand where that all comes from. So uh, just because a company has a high PE ratio uh, doesn't necessarily make it a bad investment if they actually have a lot, a lot of internal cash flow that they're reallocating internally at high growth rates. So um, so it's a good place to start, uh, but I think you have to get a lot deeper than, than a few of those uh, ratios. And fundamentally, one thing that, you know, one thing that I'm having to work on quite a bit right now is uh, is the fact that the capital light businesses, which are very likely to be many of these businesses of future, uh, are performing extraordinarily well. They have been for many years. Many of them don't have very high earnings, but ultimately they will have high earnings. And I think it's very hard from a value perspective and even a, an accounting background. Um, it's difficult to sort of, uh, uh, I guess, look out the you need to really be focused on what's out the windshield, not in the rearview mirror. And if we're all sitting around calculating things like uh, PE ratios, uh, you know we're we're looking at the past. and it's it's much more important to be a business analyst and understand what the earnings will look like tomorrow. And that's part of the reason that I expect if we do get a little inflation, over the next couple of years, that inflation carries through into the earnings of these businesses. And so it's quite possible that the earnings go up and then the prices go up. And uh, and so I don't think, as many people do, that we are at uh, some some extraordinary high level and expect things to come crashing down again. I don't, I don't think that at all. I think that we are on a very normal level, and I think that the economy will come back um, pretty pretty, uh, in a pretty fair way uh, when COVID, uh, when everything starts to open up, and I expect that earnings will uh, increase in many places, and I expect that prices in the markets will follow. And incidentally, I will add, uh, because I, I, I think this is so important, and I will say, I will, with the caveat that I've been saying this for a few years, Uh, And so far it hasn't worked out in this way, but I do think right now is probably the worst time to be holding bonds in any portfolio. This goes for my parents. This goes for uh, retirees. I think that we are at sort of a 40 year bull market in bonds and it's over and rates are at the lowest That they're going to be, and bond yields and interest rates move in an inverse level, right? So as interest rates go up, uh bond yields will go up. I guess I mean prices, right? So bond Mm -hmm. yields will go up and the prices will come down. And if you're looking at a 10-year or a 30-year, I mean that just eliminates so much capital if those rates start to go up. And they don't need to go very high, but if they go to you know, 3%, 4 5%, uh, those prices are going to drop considerably. And I will also add, you are getting zero in terms of return, in terms of real return, because inflation, the Fed's mandate is 2%. That's the target. Oh, if they happen to overshoot and we end up at 3% and your treasury is yielding 2%, you're losing money. Every year, and uh, it's just a, it's it, people should just be getting out of bonds as quickly as they can.
1: I mean, what happens if like nominal rates go negative, like they have in like Japan, Switzerland, or then?
0: Look, I, <laughs> I think it's a, Is it Taleb that says uh, risk means a lot more things can happen than will happen? Uh, I hope we don't go negative. I think there's a lot of other levers that can be pulled. I think that uh, I think it becomes really uncertain what happens when we go negative. I I can't tell you what happens, uh, but I think that the probability of going negative is pretty small. I don't think that uh, Paul wants to to go there. Uh, I think he understands the risks of mm-hmm. being in that space, and uh, and so instead of making rates low they'll just uh print money they'll just buy bonds from the treasury and just push money uh as quickly as they can into the hands of consumers and businesses
1: how do you go about like assessing the management teams of businesses you know for daily journal and Berkshire had it's pretty easy but then you know after that how you know what all do you look for in a management team
0: well, one of the nice things to look for if you if you listen to some earnings calls, you can pretty quickly hear the language they use. So if they're talking about like intrinsic value on a per share basis and they're kind of circling around this topics, you know, the return on equity, uh, these are all, those those kinds of phrase, the way the communication that they provide is very useful. Uh, it sort of shows if they have a sort of value mindset or if they're... Um, you know, uh, throwing cash around and trying to uh, sort of invent the, the newest, big and better thing and it may not work. So a big part of it is how they communicate. Um, fortunately, by the time management reaches these top positions, they usually have a long history of bearing transactions. Uh, and so you can really follow uh, the types of, types of things they've done in the past. And really, it comes down to, uh, you know, if management is sort of consistently in a has like a win-win mindset, that's usually a better management team than somebody who's just trying to to squeeze every penny out of their customers, for example, or if uh, or if they have sort of, you know, it's it's helpful to know that they're all in or that they have these sort of. I look for various invariant strategy, strategies that they would pursue in both strong economic times and in uh, you know recessionary times. And if they have sort of a, uh, again, I said win-win, but if they have a win-win relationship with their consumer, usually works out better in difficult times because the consumer is pleased with them. Just look at the success of companies like Costco. Uh, and that business model is wonderful. Now, we don't own any Costco. But I know that they have a uh, policy where they don't charge more than 15% markup on any product that they have in their store. And that makes their consumers pretty, I think, comfortable shopping there and not double checking prices, constantly trying to buy it somewhere else or getting a deal on Amazon. Uh, because it's a win-win relationship. They're actually just trying to offer a warehouse of very good value uh, to, to their members. and. Um, and so it's it's those types of invariant strategies that can um, allow us to understand uh, the quality of a management team.
1: How are you able to keep emotion and biases out of the game? <laughs> it's one of the hard it's one of the harder parts of investing. But uh,
0: I think that everybody suffers from emotional biases. Absolutely, everyone. I, I think think it would be impossible uh to not uh have biases uh some some checklists help because you can uh sort of identify your biases beforehand and you can as you go down a checklist maybe you remind yourself uh of some of the biases uh fortunately Because the the volume of transactions, because the number of transactions are so few for most value fund managers, you just need to be very careful that you've eliminated your biases on a particular position or holding that is of interest to you. Uh, One thing is that we do is we typically don't talk about the positions that we hold Publicly. So we have made a few exceptions. I brought up Daily Journal. I expect that we will hold Daily Journal for the next maybe, I I will still be holding it in 2030. So uh, I'm okay to bias myself (laughs) and tell everybody we're going to hold it till 2030. Uh, And by the way, during this crisis, the stock price went from 300 to 200. Now it's back to about 270 or so. Uh, So it is quite volatile. Uh, but one way to keep emotional biases at bay is to simply not talk publicly. That gives you, a, it, it's a huge commitment and consistency bias yeah. if you start talking about it publicly. Uh, and, f- and frankly, what happens and will probably happen uh, on this call as well, is you get some, you get feedback from viewers uh, and it's usually challenging your positions and your typical response then becomes defending your positions, and you get in this back and forth where uh, you speak publicly, you get a commitment and consistency bias, and then you have up defending all your positions, and then you get a further commitment and consistency bias, and um, it becomes very difficult to change your mind. So uh, that's one of that's a very common bias. One way to avoid it is to not uh, not be open about your entire portfolio all the time because you constantly find yourself in this defensive mode. And naturally, by the way, most value funds, uh, the positions they hold, people can be very easily critical of them because that's why the prices are low. Uh, It looks like there's some sort of issue. So uh, I would say checklists and a few uh, sort of cognizant approaches to, uh, you know, trying not to introduce biases uh, is, is very helpful.
1: You know, one of the things that you learn from a lot of these activist investors is that, you know, you got to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> like, you know, that's, for example, when, right. when Bill Blackman shorted Herbalife, you know, he was very public with that short, but then, you know, it ended up yeah, going against him. And you know, that's right that stuck with him for uh, you know still today uh, still today you know people still talk about that short and
0: yeah that's right. that's exactly right and um, i think um by the way in general i don't think i know a lot of people short uh positions but it's not something that we do in our portfolio and i think there's some some deep underlying lessons um you bring up bill ackman and um you look, it didn't work out for him monetarily. It also didn't work out for him very much uh, in, with regard to his reputation. And I think that's a real common problem with people who short. short. Uh, you feel necessary to go public uh, and then you're short. And so you're basically pointing your finger at somebody, uh, saying something negative. And, you know, general reciprocity says that they then turn and point their finger at you, start saying all sorts of negative things. So you live your life uh in this in this fight in this battle and uh, and you know maybe some people like that but i don't think it's a very comfortable way to go through life and uh and so it's for many reasons it's it's better uh to to simply be long and um and i think over the long term your portfolio performance is is just as it's strong as if you have a short book at the same time
1: to wrap up the podcast, I want to ask you: What are your top three tips for value investors?
0: Top three tips for value investors. Right. Well, I, I can certainly provide three tips. Uh, top three. Uh, well, <sighs> one of the one of the things that I will mention is that I think uh, it is really important to put a significant amount of your capital into your best ideas and if you know people tend to really over diversify uh they forget that their home is an investment to them and that they also own uh some gold somewhere and they happen to have these different accounts throughout their lives they should be putting much more than they expect into really good ideas that are in front of them. That is how um, performance and their IRRs will go up considerably. Uh, I would also recommend not trading for, uh, you know, extremely long periods of time. So uh, when I look at Daily Journal, which any any one of your viewers can go and buy, uh, they have, you know this this future cash flow is so large it's sort of like a potential uh, uh, the risk reward is is very unique because they have an equity portfolio that's going to grow into their current market cap within the next five years so the downside protection is so high whereas they have all these internal sort of almost call options uh that can go up significantly it may very easily be a three billion dollar business trading you know for 300 million or so so forget about the price buy some you know it doesn't have to be that company but it can be any company that that they like but plan to hold it for you know a decade or longer um it will it will uh eliminate so many mistakes if you're not bouncing around um so put a large amount of money into a company and uh and then hold it for a very long time a very long period of time. And you know, I would highly recommend uh, going out and searching through these 13 F's and looking at what Bill Ackman's buying or selling and looking at what uh, Lou Simpson is buying and selling or Prem Watsa is buying and selling and um, and starting there because that will give you, uh, you know, if there's 10,000 securities that you're considering for your purchase, and you're a single individual trying to understand what the best opportunity is, Uh, it's pretty hard to get through any meaningful amount of those securities. But if you eliminate 99% of those right off the bat, and you start with 200 that you're going to understand well, uh, that's much more manageable. So I would go through the 13 Fs. And I would, when you find what you like, I would put a a lot of my capital in, uh, especially as a young person. And I'm, I really do mean, you know, if you have a job and uh, a portfolio, you can quite easily put in 10, 20% of your entire portfolio into a single good idea. And then you hold that for a decade and, um, and you hold it through recessions and you hold it through any crises, you'll find that you're probably in a very, very good place. And in fact, if you're buying now, uh, I don't think you'll see opportunities like this through the next decade.
1: Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, straight. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.